Let us pray. Father God, as we come before the Word this morning, we are always uh, dependent upon you to partake of your Word. And so help give us spiritual nourishment through the Word of God this morning. We ask for your Spirit to be poured out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I assure you, what I'm about to do is going to connect with a theological point, but if you'll humor me for a moment, and um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing some lyrics from a couple hymns. I know, I know. It's scary for us all. And I would like you, when I stop singing, to tell me to name the tune. Dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, over the fields we go, laughing all the way. <laughs> Jingle bells. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the he doesn't want to hear me. I think I'm doing okay. That's correct. That's correct. Everybody, thank Bruce after worship. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. What is it? Let it snow. They're getting it. You better watch out. You better not cry. Santa Claus is coming to town. If people were asked to look at what just happened there, well, first they would say, please don't let him sing anymore. But... What would they say I was singing? Christmas hymns. Christmas hymns. Christmas songs. Jingles. Are any of those Christmas songs? Are they actually Christmas songs? No. Because the actual word of Christ, Christmas mass is the idea of Christ mass or uh, the Latin word for a worship service. We've gotten away from calling our worship services mass a mass because of really the Reformation and how the Roman Catholic kind of changed that Latin meaning. But the simple idea of Christmas is the idea of uh, worshiping Christ. And nothing about those songs celebrate Christ in a way that is connected to the season's worship that we're called to towards Christ. So none of them are actually a Christmas hymn. In contrast, while you might not be aware what was just read to you by Andy, is one of the earliest hymns of the New Testament church. In the original Greek, it is very clear that from verses 15 to 20, this is a Christmas hymn. This is a song of praise. This is a worship song. These are stanzas of a, a song. It, 
that uh, possibly was, was larger and, and the apostle is quoting them, Apostle Paul's. But notice, first off, as we look at the totality of this Christmas hymn that we're looking at today, the entire hymn is not about um, arbitrary things. But it's about who Christ is. And it's about worshiping Christ and understanding Christ. And, and it proves to us, that first off and foremost, that the music we sing matters. It matters at Christmas time. It also matters beyond Christmas time where we're talking about Christian music. Often I'll put on the radio station and listen to, to quote-unquote Christian hymns, and it's busy talking about I, 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 rather than him, 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 him. And so, right here at the start, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to through 20, it teaches us something of the true Christmas carol. In this hymn, we find a song celebrating Christ being born into the world. We find a song of his preeminence over all of creation as the firstborn of creation. We find a song singing about Christ as the head of his church. We find a, a hymn singing about the one who reconciles all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. This is a, a rich song of praise. But before we look at the song's lyrics, first we should consider the first congregational audience that would sing it. The song being found in the letter to Colossae would have spoken deeply to that audience. Uh, it is an example um, of, of the struggles, in one sense, of the New Testament church. You know, the New Testament church does not have, at its earliest inception, multiple, multiple, multiple generations that have understood the new covenant in its fullness. Uh, Christ, they are all either Jew or Gentile, in one sense, uh, members of this new covenant faith, while it still obviously has connections in, in its entirety to uh, the Old Testament. But the individual, the Gentile individual who was the new believer in Colossae, they would have been somebody who, they would have grown up in paganism. They would, have been they would have grown up in an idea of a world that was uh, highly spiritualized. That spiritual powers had at their core influence over all life's events, in one sense competing gods, competing spiritual entities, and there would uh, in one sense almost be a, a, a kind of superstitious glance or, or superstitious kind of interpretations of what are the spiritual forces at work doing? What are, they, what are they out? And what is happening in our world? And so this Christmas hymn is a hymn where we have a song that would have spoken dramatically to this, these people that in all facets of worry and fear, in all realms of, realms of power and authority, in all things, Christ is preeminent. 
that you basically can give, get away from that old pattern of, of thinking uh, that there are competing, dueling forces in one sense, but Christ reigns over all. Christ has power over all. And I don't say that to put down the ancient church. Actually, in one sense, we as the modern church, we've gotten overly rational. While we have a, a Bible that is very clear, in, for instance, in places like Ephesians chapter 6, that, that we don't just like battle with flesh and blood, but we battle against spiritual powers and authorities and, and, and these sorts of things. Um, in, our, in our world, in our public square, while the debates at the marketplace aren't maybe, you know, which pagan god is in control and, and at work in our day, in our society, we, we have a superstition of just kind of believing the fables, too, of our own society, of believing uh, the truths of the world. And, and the world will very much uh, try to encourage you to believe in its own brand of paganism and superstitious, superstition and false belief and false understanding. And so this song is also for us. Maybe while we are not necessarily struggling to see competing gods in all things, what our struggle is is to see nothing of a spiritual battle in the things that we are seeing unfold in our world today. So we'll sing things like a mighty fortress of our God uh, and we'll sing things like, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. Armed with cool, cruel hate, on earth is not as equal. We'll sing these songs, but we're very much disconnected from this spiritual battle. In a way that all previous generations of the Christian faith wouldn't have been in the same manner. And so this song very much is trying to get that person with spiritual worries and fears about what powers might overwhelm them or undo them, to say that what do we need in such moments? What we need is Christ. What we need is a better song that centers on Christ to let us once again orient ourselves to looking to Him. And so let us then consider this Christmas hymn. The very first verse of this song tells us something about the incarnation. The child who came at Christmas Yes, God is invisible, yet Christ is the picture of God. He is the exact image of that which we could want at once not see. When you look upon the one who came, you are looking at God. When Peter walked with Jesus, he was walking with God. When James grew up in the household of Jesus, he was growing up in the household where God was present. When Mary felt Jesus move within her womb, she was feeling the very movements of God. There is this remarkable image of how this God who was once unseen is uniquely now seen in the coming of our Lord in flesh. And while that's unfathomable for us to consider fully, as the hymn's lyrics continue, 
It lets us know that this baby originally born in Bethlehem is the firstborn of all creation. And what does that mean? Well, there are a couple ways the New Testament uses the firstborn. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7 is one example. We have Jesus referenced as being Mary's firstborn child. And that's talking about order in the family of birth, uh, the birth order. As we learn in the Gospels themselves, there is testimony to Jesus having uh, a family beyond just himself, that um, he has brothers, at least. And so we have that testimony, but... Here, the idea of firstborn is supremacy. It's, in one sense, the idea of, in the midst of all other births, he is the firstborn of all. He is the birth of all births that brings joy, that brings peace, that brings a reason to celebrate, a reason to delight. And and for the early church that that often didn't have a struggle believing Jesus was a spiritual being, the firstborn for them would be, in one sense, a a testimony that this this Jesus actually took on flesh. He was connected with an umbilical cord. He was in amniotic fluid. He was um, born of flesh and blood. But into our day where we don't so much, and I'm speaking for the world at this point, disbelieve the idea that Jesus came, this firstborn is also, again, that spiritual supremacy, that authority over all things, uh, both heaven and earth. And so, again, in his being born, all other births pale in comparison. They cannot be compared because his birth is first of all. And it ranks above all others because, again, he is that image of God. He is, in one sense, the photo of God that we could not see until his taking on flesh in this way. And he is also the image that we originally made in and were called to follow. And then the song moves on into verse 16. And verse 16 has a stanza stanza that has a substantial theological debate behind it. And so when you read this part of the hymn lyric, for by him all things were created, that's a very hard verse to translate from Greek to English. And the debate is this. The Greek there can either or or both, the answer is going to be both. Either be saying, in all of creation, Jesus, Jesus created all things. That there's nothing created that he did not create. Or it can also be saying, basically, all of creation, think of it in one sense as a sphere. Think of the expanses of the universe whatever, all heaven and earth, everything that is in existence in, one, in the hands of Jesus in one sense, it's a sphere. It's a, it's a realm in its entirety. And all of it 
in one sense, was created in order for Jesus to be magnified, Jesus to be glorified, Jesus, to, Jesus Christ to be able to be the preeminent one within this sphere. And, and in this sphere, he basically holds it all together, that he ordains everything that takes place within this sphere, this realm. And so it's, it's a both-and kind of idea. Sometimes theologians will argue the one or theologians will argue the other, but the reality is the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing in the Greek, and what he's trying to tell you is Jesus created all things, and yet all things are also for him. And this becomes a profound truth when we grab a hold of it because that means everything within this sphere that is struggling against and desiring not to conform to the image and desires of what Jesus wants for this realm of created order, both heaven and earth, that in one sense we're fighting against God, and, and that changes things. And one day he's going to set this sphere right, but even in the fixing of it, even in the, the things that he's allowed to be ordained to come to pass in his creatingness, it all moves to glorify him. So that my life's purpose is so that it might serve to glorify God. Your life's purpose is that it might serve to glorify God. The trees, nature, the beauty around us, the purpose behind it is so that it might serve to glorify God, to testify of His goodness, of His creation. Because we're not only just a byproduct of His creative power, but it's more than that. The highest apex of, the, of, of reason for our being is to testify in one sense, of the glory of Christ, of the how he exists. I mean, what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans? You can even look at nature and see the reality of our God existing. And so, there's a sense in which the goal of very existence itself is to re further reveal Christ in all power, in all authority, and all majesty. And while this sphere that he has of his created order of both heaven and earth can, currently has vile pollution within it, our Lord must and will entirely root out all of these things in order to further glorify him in his name. He currently works towards and calls us to be a part of the laboring towards the removal of that which pollutes his sphere, pollutes his creation. And so Christ has power both of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible, of thrones and dominions. And, and that thrones and dominions there, we shouldn't just think of Moscow, we shouldn't just think of Beijing, we shouldn't just think of Washington, D.C., but even Satan's throne, even Satan's power, even evil's power, and all thrones and dominions, all throughout time itself, all of these things will ultimately bow the knee and ultimately made in order to one day be conquered and entirely ruled by Him. All of these exist inside this sphere of power, 
which Christ sovereignly has all power and authority over. And so when we think of the Christmas story, when we think of those angels singing as as Christ being born in the manger, in one sense, what they are singing about, and and this isn't the fullness of it, it's, it's almost like a Normandy kind of invasion. An outbreaking, a a landing point of God's incarnate body. He has now entered into the sphere in which he created of, of all the things that he has made. And through his entering in at that moment, he's going to set it all right. And when we celebrate Christmas and when we celebrate songs and worship, part of our significant part of our praise is to look back at that and say how amazing that is, but also look forward and hope and say how amazing this will all be. That's the point of this Christmas song. Because God is supreme over all. And then the song continues in verse 17, and we read that he is before all things, and in, all thi- in him all things are held together. This help further establishes the fact that he's God. Because if he's before all things, logically, he can only be God at that point. He can't be just like what the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons want to say he is, just like this kind of God ascending human being. No. He's before all things. All things are held together through Him. This actually is a statement in song of His divinity. That He is the one God. And that all things are held together through Him. And the universe depends on this God holding it together. And that's the difference. His holding it together is why we just don't get utterly lost in the chaos of all things but rather there is his saving power. This once baby in the manger manger has such a priority in all things that the very cosmos itself would be chaos if not for him. Sometimes scientists fret about a solar flare or a supervolcano or um, the fact that 0.03 of 1% of our oxygen is carbon, and 0.04 of that carbon is human-made. And somehow we're going to so cast the world into global warming that we will die from it. (laughs) Or other ideas. You can look it up. You can look up the percentage of oxygen that's actually carbon in here, and really ask yourself, why, what are we so afraid of? The reality is, regardless of it, this hymn says, anything that comes to pass, he holds. He holds together. In, in one sense, we are immortal until he decides to let us go. When I think of Bob Lomas, the Lord let him go. He let... The wave of death passed over him, and yet in the wave of death passing over him, darkness was not the end of Bob Lomas. But here he was, hearing Christmas hymns 24 hours earlier from our, our hymnal. 
And then he's transported to Zion and hearing the Christmas hymns right now that they're singing in his presence. And that's amazing, and that's incredible, and that's beautiful, and that's the hope that we have. And it's a wonderful thing that we celebrate. And he holds it all together. There's one sense in which God is, Jesus, we went through the Red Sea and we saw in that Red Sea imagery, the people had to walk through the Red Sea and God was holding back the waves of destruction. And, and there's a sense in the, the Greek here that Christ holds back that which would destroy his people and that we would be lost in it that he has power over all other powers. And that is good news. And that's the kind of news that should make us want to sing Christmas hymns. While we look at our broader world today and go, oh wow, this present age's godlessness is going to, to crush us all. Uh, we start fretting about the state of the world. We start fretting about how bad things have come, have gone and go. And, and, and it's a mistake in one sense due to the lyrics of this song. We have to also recognize that, yes, while sometimes there are things, fearful things that surround us, our God holds all things together. And in that all things is our salvation in Christ, which we cannot lose, which we, he will never forsake, which he will always safeguard and protect until he ushers us into that life to come. And then we read the next verse of the hymn. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the church. Let's just take this really literally because it's helpful to understand what's being said here. What could you accomplish without your head today? Let's say your head was severed from your body. What are you going to accomplish today? Nothing. Nothing. One of the reasons why we are a reformed church is that the, the Roman papacy had the audacity to call itself the head of the church. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The only head of the church is sung about in this song. It is Christ Jesus our Lord. Pope Francis is not a head of the church. That is Christ's role. And while we pick on Rome, how do we Protestants do away with the head of our church? Yes, while we haven't, you know, uh, created uh, our own papacy, let's say, though, though there are some Protestant pastors who get pretty close. You know what we do to the head of the church? Metaphorically speaking, we bound him. We gag him. We put, we put duct tape all over his mouth. We don't want to hear from your word. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Be quiet. Don't you know the world out there doesn't like what you say in here? We don't want to hear from you, God. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing in the public square. They'll think I'm a fool. And yet without a head, speaking, seeing, telling, <coughs> interacting with you, 
which he does through the word of God, through the power of his spirit, you have nothing in the Christian faith. You drive around this area, there are headless churches all around us. They will not hear from him. They will not let him speak. They're headless. But also the idea of, of his headship here. I want you to do another thought experiment with me for a moment. I want you to imagine you're transported to a table. You're going to eat with somebody. First, Elon Musk is transported to your table. How are you going to act around Elon Musk? All right. Maybe, maybe the appetizers are done. Now Joe Biden's transported to your table. You're eating with Joe Biden. Then, next service, this is a multi-course meal. It's like that one time for my uh, grandparents' anniversary, my dad took us to Four Seasons or whatever, and we had this like seven-course meal. I couldn't believe it. All, all the bites were like little tiny things, though. All right, Donald Trump is there. Vladimir Putin is there. Jalen Hurts is there. Whoever's at the table, whoever at the head of the table, will change the entire course of the dinner conversation. It'll change how you act, what you think, what you want to say. Well, Christ is the head. Christ is the head of all things. Christ is the head of our lives. How does that change us? What does that make us want to do when we're in his midst? Because you can sit here and listen to preaching out of the Word of God, but, and I can too. And still, I could leave this place and go, shh, shh, quiet. I don't want to hear from you. He's the head of the church. You know, Mary's final words in Scripture, when she's caught just kind of coming up with her own ideas, and Jesus kind of makes it clear. She has this profound, simple truth. Do whatever he tells you. Basically, stop listening to me. Do whatever he tells you. What is our faith like at Christmas time? Do we desire to do whatever he tells us? Or do we say, no, that's embarrassing, Jesus. If it's embarrassing, all you're doing is gagging him. He is not the head of the church. We need to consider his presence. We need to consider what he hears, what he sees, what he's... What he said to us in our midst. But then in the second half of verse 18, he is the beginning. The firstborn in the of the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. In the song of Christ, we discover that the God who entered the world has all power in the world. And a significant part of the purpose in his coming is so that he would die. And yet in dying, he would then be the first who's truly raised in a glorified state. You might not know this, but besides Jesus' resurrection, there are seven other instances in the scripture where people come back from the dead. And yet uh, those people all died again. He is the firstborn of a new 
Easter morning, that East, uh, of a new creation, that first resurrection of Easter morning. Actually, as we even kind of reference Bob Lomas, or maybe we think of others that have died in faith, that have gone on before us, there is a sense in which they still await what we await, that day where we're handed a, a body like Christ that never will decay again, that never will die again. And we will be. So while when we pass on in death, we will be happier than we've ever been, more is to come. Our eternal hope is embodied hope. And this hymn is reminding us of this truth. And as the hymn begins to draw to a close, it states in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Which is amazing. The fullness of God was first wrapped in swaddling clothes. And then at the end of his mortal life, he was allowed to be stripped of every last vestige of his clothing and dignity and be made to die. And all the while, his glory shone all the more. And even though in that embodied temple of Christ, that incarnation, which truly is, as scriptures reveal, the third temple, even though it was often mocked and shunned and ridiculed, he still is pleased in it for all his fullness to dwell. Let me maybe explain it this way. In the book of the prophet Ezekiel, there is this moment where God leaves Solomon's temple. He just, it has gotten too vile too filthy in Jerusalem, in the land of Judah, and he just departs and leaves the temple. And yet here is the embodied Savior. And we don't often think about this, but for instance... What if Jesus had not liked that body? What if he had passed on into death and, and just said, I'm going to create a new one. I'm just going to let that one go. I'm just going to... No. In that body, God was pleased for all his fullness to dwell. He's so happy with that mortal flesh that he's been given. He's so satisfied by it that one day sooner... Then the last one day that, that Bob was made to experience this week, we will see him. We will see his scars. We will see the marks of suffering. And, and often it's, it's very popular for pastors. Oh, you know, he must be so somber, almost like an Eeyore. Uh, you know, oh, you know, the nail marks in his hands, these sorts of things. Absolutely not. He is pleased. He is pleased for all his fullness to dwell in this vessel, in this temple for all eternity. So that, and I've used this illustration before, it's like, it's like the stretch marks of my wife. She gets upset about it. She gets upset about it. 
But what do the stretch marks of my wife show me? That's the mother of my children. I love them. I love them. That is a woman who somehow saw this mess of a person and said, I would have that guy's children. And she did. And she bears the marks of it. And some of the wrinkles probably too. But nevertheless, I love those marks. God was pleased in all his fullness to dwell in this, the third temple. So that when we see Jesus, we don't have to lament. He's like, I loved you so much. And, and, and I hope you can see how much I loved you in this. There's no, there's no like idea of remorse or a begrudging salvation. This was his great pleasure. And then the last verse. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, I didn't point this out in last week's sermon, but last week's sermon, in part, we were at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. And the Apostle Paul says on Mars Hill uh, something that kind of ties into this verse at this moment. He basically told the people of Athens that God overlooked a lot of sin. But now that he's come into the world and been resurrected from the dead, that basically that evidence is now entered in a new era. And if you do not receive it, you will be judged. You know, some might look at the first part of verse 20 when it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things as hope for maybe a universalism. You know, we all want to kind of be saved by the skin of our teeth. kind of idea. But the reality is we need to return to that imagery that's been in this song of Jesus controlling the entire sphere. This is his world. Let's think of our own dominions or domains. We all have a place we, we set our head at night, a place we call home, a domicile. Even if you're a child, you have a room or something. You have something that is a place where you are a part of. And when it comes to clean the place, the all things here is not suggesting that everything's going to be saved. But when you come to clean a place, you, you throw some things away, you scrub others, You dust off others, you you set things right that were maybe moved and put in different places. All of this comes into the restoration of all things. That's very much at the idea behind this moment in this final verse. There is a day of cosmic reconciliation coming where everything is going to be set right. And to set things right doesn't mean all are saved. No, not at all, but... We need, God is going to throw some things away. That's why hell is linked to Gehenna, a trash heap. One day God is going to clean this entire sphere in which he has created and also reigns over to clean all of heaven and earth. And that can be a frightful thought. 
Because what do we know about ourselves? We know that we are unclean. And so are we to fear? Are we to be afraid? No. We are to make peace, as this song makes clear. We are to make peace by the blood of his cross. And so don't let another Christmas season pass where, you know, the songs that we sing in worship are no different than the songs that uh, we sing at the beginning of the sermon. The time is now. God has revealed in his coming for us and for our salvation and his rising from the dead that we can make peace with him through the blood of the cross. He is our holy creator. And he holds together this world that continues to try as it might to break itself apart. But so come now to the king. The floodwaters of judgment will not hold back forever. And so go to that manger. Go to that vessel in which the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Our King in Zion, go to him in prayer and make peace to him if you do not have peace with him today. And if you do have peace with him, remember, the point of our lives is praise unto Christ. Hymns of praise unto Christ, little decisions and, and actions in our life that are ones that are rooted in our love of God and our love of our Savior. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the hope of this song. And that's the hope of all those who are saved in him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we reviled your son. We were not pleased with him. We would rather have seen him on a cross. In our sin. He was the image of the invisible God. And he was constantly mocked and scoffed in the public places. And Lord. We look at the pattern of Christ and the road of suffering that he was made to bear. And we think we know better. We think that we might make peace with the world that mocks our Lord and Savior, and then it will be better for us. But you were the God who cries out to us and says, take up your cross and follow me. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to heed the words of this song. Help us to heed the one in Zion who holds all things together through his strength. While you have been merciful to give us another day of life, let us not take this for granted, but let us understand that the entirety of our life is to glorify Christ in his name. Let us be ever more faithful to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.